After we finished the interview you're about to hear, Rennell, Hugh, and I stayed on the line chatting for a bit. It was one of those times I really wished I had just kept the recorder going. He started talking to me about the city of Enoch and how the scriptures teach us that they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. He then pointed out that the people in 4th Nephi seemed like they were on the same track. We read that there was no contention in the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people and there could not have been a happier people who had been created by the hand of God. So what happened? Why weren't they taken up like the city of Enoch? Well, the scriptures say they began to be divided into classes. So the question now for us is, are we going to let that be our downfall as well? Rennell Hugh has spent most of his career in marketing. He began working for Real Salt Lake and has since worked for HP, Adobe, Walmart, and Microsoft. He has also served on advisory committees for the BYU Marriott School where he earned his MBA. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so honored to have Ronell Hugh on the line with me today. Ronell, welcome. Thank you, Morgan. Happy to be here with you. Well, I have been looking forward to this conversation. I'm super excited. Let's get started with your upbringing. You have a bit of an untraditional upbringing in terms of growing up internationally. You grew up in Germany. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I was born in Germany. Um, my parents met in Germany. My mom's Jamaican uh, and, my mom, and my dad's American. And they met in Germany. And so there's five kids in my family. Four, all four of the boys were born in Germany. And we lived in a small town, actually. So I... Uh, west of Frankfurt, about 40, maybe 50 miles. And it's a small town called Hergenfeld. So my childhood was was very unique in this in sense of I spoke German as a child growing up. I mean, I learned both English and German, but was able to develop that, I guess, talent, if you will, that language skill. And But that was where it started. So grew up in Germany and lived there until I was about seven or eight. And then moved back to the United States. So moved to North Carolina, so the Raleigh area, and lived there for about two or three years, and then moved to England. So I always tell people, by the time I was 10, I lived in three different countries, which really, in a lot of ways, helped shape me and a lot of my curiosity about people, cultures, and engaging with different people. So it's, uh, yeah, it totally is a, a major factor in who I am and, you know, who I am as a person. Yeah. How does, how would you say that it shapes that curiosity having grown up around different, because North Carolina, having grown up there, very different than England. I've never been to Germany, but I can only imagine. So how does that shape that? The great question. It's one of those things for me, like the town that I grew up in Germany, there's about 520 people that live in that town. So it was really a village, right? And you become so well acquainted with all the families. My wife and I went back there right before the pandemic hit in, in 2019. And we walked the town in like 30, 40 minutes, very fast walk. Like everybody, you know, everybody still lives there that I knew. And that was just foundational for me. Just the, the kind of family oriented community, it helped kind of, you know, develop for me and just being with people who just generally like to be around each other. And, and then when moving to North Carolina, it was so different. Actually, I remember moving to North Carolina the two times I moved, I was a little, I was eight years old when I moved it the first time. So we lived in a small little town outside of Raleigh and Nightdale. 
And it was interesting. It, it, I learned a ton about that, but it was actually that experience was the first time that I experienced racism for me was living in North Carolina, like moving there and having an experience. And then England was totally different. You know, the culture of England, the people, uh, the things that they value, all were different in each country. But I think it gave me a perspective about people, just being interested in people. You know, I, I often say and use the word curiosity. How curious are we as we think about others who aren't like us or who maybe are like us. I mean, there's people that we consider are like us, but they may have so many things about them that are so unique to them that are for me inspirational. I get really inspired by people and their stories and the things that they've been able to accomplish. And so uh, I think those three living in those three different places helped me to do that and actually forced me to do that. So I couldn't just sit back and just let things come to me. When you move, you know, you have to either, inject yourself into cultures and communities and, and try to figure out what's happening and how, you know, how can you be a part of it? Um, and that just wasn't my nature. And so I've always been one of those who like, okay, let me just dive in. I want to get to know people. I want to understand more than probably should, but that's kind of where I focus my energy. Well, you and I will be good friends because I also love hearing about people's stories and I love I, I just think everybody has a story. And if you dig deep enough, you're going to figure out what it is. And so I, I'm excited to hear more about yours, though, as we talk together today. You mentioned that when you came to Raleigh, that was the first time that you had experienced racism. I'm, I'm curious, how were you treated as a person of color? What were the differences from like Germany to Raleigh to England? Yeah, starting off in, in Germany, it was interesting. I... I don't remember or recall any experiences as a child, you know, growing up. And we were the only black family in this small town. And, and I remember one incident that I remember as a child was this gentleman, or he was the father of two, these two girls that we were friends with. He said to me, he said, Renell, du bist schwarz, which is Renell, you're black. And I said, no, I'm brown. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't even anything racist related, right? Like it was just more of him, like just, and it was funny. And then to about five years ago, six, seven years ago, actually, I went back and he saw me walking into town and he related that story to me. He's like, remember when I told you this? And you came back and it was, it was just so funny to talk to him about That's it. hilarious. Um, but there, there's no, there wasn't any things that I recall in my experience in Germany that really invoked, you know, in me like this, this, like how I have to feel different because of the color of my skin. If anything, living in the town that I did, people treated me like I was, I was German. And that's how I still, when I go back, they're like, Oh, Ronell's back. He's a part of our community. He's German. Um, and, and that's just kind of a key thing for me. When I moved to North Carolina, it was, it was the first thing I remember. And I, I typically share this experience. I, I can't remember my age, and, but I moved there when I was about eight. So somewhere between eight and 10, I probably was about, you know, probably eight or nine. I remember walking down the driveway. It was, we had, you know, Pebblestone driveway and we were walking down to my mailbox and I saw a sticker on my mailbox, KKK. And being new to the country, I didn't really <laughs> had no idea what that meant. Right. And so I was like, huh, why does somebody put a sticker on our mailbox? And I got up to grab the mail, walked back up the driveway and gave it to my mom. And I remember telling her that somebody put this sticker on our mailbox. And I could, and for me, it was just seeing her response, just vis like as a child, you know, seeing her visible response, just like sadness, anger, frustration. She didn't say anything, but I could see all of that in her face and in her body. Right. 
And that just kind of opened up a new world for me. And, and from that moment on, I think my parents, they would often share with us different things about like, what does it mean to be a black person living in the United States? And then, you know, at 10, I moved to England and England is so different. Like England, I find it fascinating. My brother and I often would, would find ourselves in these unique situations where in, in England, you have a lot of people from India and you have a lot of people that are obviously British or from England or from Scotland or Ireland kind of in that community. And you have others too. You have a lot of immigrants from Jamaica there too. And this may sound crazy, but we had, there were so many kids that would get in fights and there was usually between, you know, British kids who were, who were white and these Indian kids that were always just fighting. And it was just this tension that I often found. And I think that tension obviously still exists there in England, but it was a tension between those F, those groups. I never felt for me, anything that I'm out now, later on, my mom has shared with me stories, but as a, as a child growing up there as a teenager, I didn't feel any of that, that tension. Right. And so it was really kind of these two, these two kind of like a sandwich, if you will, like it was mostly like my experiences in, in North Carolina at the time as a child where I had that, those perspectives really forming for me mm-hmm. and moving back. So we moved back to North Carolina when I was 16 and that's when, you know, I, you start to develop as a teenager, you have to kind of be more aware and understand like, okay, me, I'm six foot one. I'm very athletic build. I don't want to leave the wrong impression. So I have to be very, very discognizant of that. And so I started to develop, you know, how to manage myself when it comes to this topic. So, yeah, well, and I'm curious, I, I guess for me, when you said the thing about, you know, my parents started talking to us about, you know, being aware of, I I don't remember exactly how you put it, but I guess for me, it's like, those are conversations that were never had in my home about the color of our skin. And so I'm thinking, okay, like that's something that's taking place in, in homes of people of color. So I wonder like for you, even as a parent, like what do those conversations look like? What are the things that you're saying to your kids or that your parents said to you? Yeah. It's, and you know, it's interesting. It's one of the things they call the talk. You can go out and find, I think Procter and Gamble did a video on it a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago, but it's well known in, in, in many spheres, especially in the black community, this idea of the talk. And for me with my parents, it was, you know, first and foremost, how do we treat other people? My parents were exceptional at really making sure that we treated people with respect, with dignity, and we truly treated them like they were, you know, our brothers and sisters. And that's super important because at the time, I mean, as in my formative years, I didn't join a church until I was 14. So this was something that was ingrained in me as a child living in Germany in my early days of living in North Carolina. And it was such a huge part. And I think that just made it so important for me. Like, okay, how do I do that? What am I doing daily? How do I treat people in my interactions? And then there were other things of just being aware of our surroundings, you know, being aware of like what happens when a police officer comes, what do you do? What do you say? Where should your hands be in terms of, you know, on the steering wheel and not like anywhere where they think that that you may have a weapon of some sort, um, making sure you have your, your, you know, your driver's license and your insurance and your vehicle registration in a place that's easily accessible. So that doesn't look like you're doing anything wrong. You know, there's so many other topics that my parents would talk about with me just to make sure that we were safe. And it wasn't in any way, shape or form animosity towards other people. It was just like, how do you keep yourself safe? 
how do you keep yourself safe so that people don't assume that you're doing something wrong? Because that was, right. that was kind of the, the environment that we, that, you know, that, that American some, and I don't think it exists as much, but it's still, it's still there today in a lot of ways uh, mm-hmm. and, and elements of it. And so for me then as a parent, you know, taking that around, you know, as I started having kids, I started to think heavily about how they can be an influence for good. Just being good, a good child. Like we had to, my wife and I, my wife's white. And so we have these, you know, biracial kids and, and, you know, initially in our marriage, my wife thought like, well, just raising them in the gospel will, will be all that we needed to do. Like we didn't have to talk about anything about race or anything of that nature. But over time, you know, she started having her own experiences uh, and, and realize, well, we have to understand culturally some of the things they may be faced with, you know, and for me, I'm just like, Hey, just make sure that, you know, for, with my kids, I have two kids, I have four kids, two boys, two girls, and my girls are phenomenal. My boys are awesome. And, and, but they, they recognize that they are different. You know, we live in, we live in Utah and, and they're, <laughs> they are definitely a minority even here where we live, but helping them understand how do they, how do they present themselves? How do they talk about things? How do they communicate with people who may say things that are inappropriate or not very nice? And it happens, you know, you know, kids will say things and, and making sure that they can say or respond in a, in a respectful way, but also making sure that they can do it to get their point across. And for me, it was hard because I think moving, we moved back to Utah four or five years ago. And the biggest thing that we thought about was for me was, what will my kids experience, right? What would they have to deal with? Because in Utah, it's not very diverse. And, you know, within six months of being here, it was actually the week of Martin Luther King week in, in February, you know, January of 2017. My daughter comes home and I'm sitting there talking to her and asking her and my oldest son, how was your day? What happened? And my daughter tells me an experience she had at our local elementary school where a kid came up to her at the playground and told her that black people were ugly. And she's six, right? And, and so luckily my six-year-old who was also, she was at the time as my very feisty six-year-old girl <laughs> turns around and I was like, what does she do? But she turned around to this young boy who was, I think a great older and said to him, you know, don't judge me by my color, judge me by how I act. And so to think that at six, she already knows that she has to be able to respond in a certain way. And, and that became a priority for me, you know, cause I think we get judged by a lot of different things. And that's one of the things I hopefully ingrained in my kids. Don't judge people by anything, get to know them, get to know who right. they are, get to know what they like and dislike. And that's okay. If they dislike things that you don't like <laughs> or that you like, right. It's something that we put such an emphasis on because it doesn't matter who a person is. It doesn't matter what their religious background is, you know, their religious affiliation or where they come from, what city or ethnicity they are. We've focused so heavily on that aspect of it. And making sure that our kids understand this is this is what it's about, and not only that, this is what the Savior was about. That's this is what He did, uh, and He put such an emphasis on that. And so we we really place a huge emphasis on that with our kids. Well, I love that response from your little girl. It makes my blood boil a little bit that she even had to deal with that. But what a response, you know. <laughs> I want to come back to this, but really quickly. You mentioned that you joined the church when you were 14. How did you and your family, how did you come in contact with the church and what initially drew you to the gospel? So, yeah, we, we had lived in England for about two years. So I'm actually go back. I was as a child in Germany, I was Christian Catholic. 
we moved to the States. You know, my dad's family, Southern Baptists, we would go to church with them. My parents weren't really frequent church attenders, you know, they liked the idea of us going. So even as a child in Germany, I read this really, this, this, this Bible stories book. So I was very well knowledge in terms of the Bible and kind of all the stories that happened in the Bible. Then I moved to North Carolina, go to Southern Baptist, we went to Presbyterian, with the Methodist church. And then I have an aunt who's a Jehovah witness. And so right before we moved to England, we studied with the Jehovah witnesses for about two years. And then we moved to England. And then for two years from 1990 to 1992, we didn't attend a church at all. And it was interesting because we were living with my grandmother, my mom's mom, and through some unfortunate events, you know, uh, we found ourselves homeless and we lived in a homeless shelter. And I can't remember how long it was, but my sister, who was very young at the time, she could have only been probably five or six, shared with me not too long ago that I was one day, like while we we're in the shelter, like holding her, we were both crying apparently. Um, cause we didn't understand what was, we didn't understand. We knew something bad had happened and we knew that we were in this place and we were like, and that, but she tells me, it's like, I, I was there holding her and saying, you know, things are going to work out, you know, God will take care of us. And it was interesting because that was when, after we got out of the homeless shelter, we got put into this government housing area in England. And my dad said, we need to find a church. We've been without a church in our life. We need to go find one. So he just, he went out. My mom wasn't too as, as interested, but he went out and he started going to different churches. I remember going to a, a big old cathedral with him, you know, and if you're if you traveled in England or Europe, you just, these cathedrals are just massive. Right. And they're so impressive. And then one day my dad happened upon two sister missionaries. They were walking around, you know, obviously doing what missionaries do. And then they reached, talked with him about coming and teaching us. And my mom was very apprehensive at first because, I mean, her sisters are her witnesses. So we obviously know the, <laughs> the issues there. Um, but they came over and it was so powerful for me in, me in terms of, you know, I'm 13 at a time and they're talking about things that I know. They talked about, you know, a prophet and how prophets are important. And I was like, well, if you don't understand that, then you maybe have not ever read the Bible. Like I know that and it doesn't, you know, and, and, and so that was one thing that really stood out to me. And then this, the idea of really centering our focus on being a child of God, you know, I think a lot of religions, they may talk about it, but there's something that really impressed me when I heard the missionaries talk about it and really something that I felt that really resonated with me. And so that, you know, led to us as kind of, inter, you know, having the missionary discussions and having the missionaries over. And we actually got to know a ton of the missionaries in our area very well. And so uh, it was June of June of 1993 that my family, there's except for my sister, she was too young. She was still seven at the time, but so six of us um, were baptized as members of the church. And, you know, we're at different stages in our, you know, journey right now, um, which is great, which I love, love to see, but I've, I've loved it for me. It's been great. And it's been such a foundation for me to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and to understand it even more and how I apply it to my life. So I wondered, so 1993, were you familiar when you joined the church of the history of the church as it relates to blacks? You know, I wasn't actually when I joined in 1993, actually my mom and I recently had this conversation that, you know, she mentioned to me that she wished she would have shared more or we would have done more of that type of you know, discovery for ourselves. And I didn't know much, 
And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until later on. It wasn't until I was about probably 18 or 19 getting to go to serve a mission. And I saw my mission in the Utah Ogden mission. But I really started to have questions about it. But they weren't questions in the sense of like that drew me away from the gospel. It was more of questions like, I don't understand. And it was, it was one of those things. And actually, it was interesting on my mission serving in Utah. I had a lot of people that would say to me, how can you belong to a church? that didn't allow blacks to have the priesthood. And that's a deep question. That's a question that takes more than just say, let's have a five minute conversation (laughs) about this. And I remember like at one point and and we're a very, we're a very sarcastic family. And so I have to, I have to be mindful of that because my my responses can sometimes be sarcastic. But I remember one time saying to somebody, what, what would you do if God asked you to do something? I, I, I probably had gotten so tired of answering the same question. So I was like, I'm going to get in my mind. I just started thinking about, I became a member of the church. because I felt that the Lord wanted me to do this. And I truly did. I felt that was what the spirit directed me to do personally. And so I, I, I asked this question and this person said to me, well, I would, you know, do what God tells me to do. And I was like, well, God asked me to join this church. So I did like, I don't have all the answers about, you know, blocks and priesthood, but now as I've matured, you know, for me, I've gone on my own discovery. I've, I've had to do a ton of work because I get the questions often from people around this topic. And I, you know, I've done my, my work on this for me personally over the last, you know, since my mission. So I served in 1998. And so it's been quite some time, but at the time, no, there wasn't much deep perspective on the church's history around, around blacks and the priesthood. Well, and I think to your point, like we all are, learning and growing. That's something that I've thought a lot about recently is that fortunately we worship a God of eternal progression. And I think Satan is very much like, you need to figure everything out right now. Like, let's go. You got to go. You got to figure this out. And, and I'm grateful that our heavenly father allows us to, you know, explore and try to better understand. And we do have to all go on, whether it's, you know, racial issues or just like basic testimony, fundamental testimony issues. We all have to go on that personal discovery and continue to know for ourselves that we're doing what God wants us to do. You recently have done a lot of, of speaking and teaching about creating spaces of belonging And you talked about how one morning you woke up around 2 a.m. with these words in your mind. This is about eternal Heavenly Father correctness, not worldly political correctness. What do you think, Rennell, that this prompting was trying to communicate to you? This was pivotal for me. You know, I, it's, this was 2020. My wife and I had started to, we were being invited to do different firesides and different types of engagements. And I remember the initial one that I was brought into was from an amazing friend and it was for a more government oriented, like so far city Highland city where I live. And I, I remember just having so many experiences there that were, some were good and many of them were, some of them were good, some were bad. And I just, I just had this thought in my mind, you can't, you can't have this type of a conversation from a political and worldly standpoint. And so as we were preparing for fireside, and this one specifically was to our old stake in Seattle, I, we had been getting so many questions, right? And we were getting emails from the people who were preparing it. And so when I woke up and had this thought, I think the prompting was trying to communicate, 
we have to focus on how does Heavenly Father think about this, right? This is not about the, our identities aren't about the, the worldly or political aspects of this because that's what Satan wants us to focus on, right? When we focus on, well, my political views are this and the world is telling me this about the topic of prejudice or racism, you can never come to a conclusion or figure out how do we move forward because all you're doing is debating and debunking on different sides of it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that same day that I had this impression that morning at 10 a.m., the organizers of the fires had sent me over the, this email that was very long from a gentleman who was on one side of the political landscape who had very, very high passions about what we were doing was evil, was wrong, and all we're doing is making a mountain out of a molehill. And this, the email was much longer than that. That's just a kind of a shortened version of it. And this, this thought kind of hit on that was like, you're, you're not focused on the wrong. You're not focused on the right things. You're focused on it from a, from a political standpoint. And that doesn't really work when you have this type of conversation. It won't work. Right. And it's hard to, you know, it's hard to have this type of conversation when you think of it only in the world of you. And so this has been really something that I, we have tried to focus on as, you know, and, and me particularly, because I think we have to see it. Like if we can't see it, each other as children of God and identity is first and foremost that we can never really move forward and make progress. Right. It's always going to be aisles, people sitting here, people sitting here. And if you can look at somebody and see them as a child of God and see, this is about heavenly father and his correctness and how he sees each of us, then we maybe will start to think about this differently. We'll maybe start to think about what is my place in this? Like, what can I do to have uh, an impact. And I think we, you know, we see the prophet calling us to action and, and, and asking us to take steps forward. And I think sometimes we don't, we don't understand that's literally an invitation. That's a request for us to actually do something. It's not just a nice for me to ponder and think about it actually requires to take action. And so that's where this comes from. And it really is really kind of centers on this idea of, you know, what's our identity. And then once we know our identity, what do we do? And how do we actually tackle this topic with that identity in mind? Because literally we're all children of God. We have to gather Israel. Gathering Israel isn't just one ethnicity. It isn't just Americans. It's not just white people. It's everybody. (laughs) It's all of God's children. And that's where kind of the power of this comes from for me. Well, I am over here like, amen, amen, and amen. But I, I want to come back later to this idea of identity. But really quickly, I do think to your point about it not being a political issue, I know based on our experience at LDS Living, there are people that view the prophet calling for us to root out racism, they, they have kind of a visceral reaction to that. But I wonder for you, like when our prophet talks about rooting out racism, what does that look like in action? I know when we get into statistics, it can begin to feel really overwhelming, but what would you say we as individuals can do to, to do that in our individual lives? You know, I think so. it was President Oaks who made the statement to root out racism, right? And then and President Nelson then talked about how can we abandon attitudes and actions of prejudice. And I think those, those two statements to me are so important to consider. You know, one of the things that I like to do and actually hit me over the summer when I was thinking about this and continue to be asked to speak on this topic, I, really, I actually really reached, I really thought about 
what is the what is the prophet? Do we believe him to be a prophet? Right now, first and foremost, I think a lot of us, and you probably you know this, and you probably heard this before, but a prophet for me is somebody who can inspire us and inspire, just be inspiring the world. It's not just a prophet; isn't just somebody for members of the church, right? So this call is for everyone. And, then, and the second thing was, what does it mean to abandon attitudes and actions of prejudice? Like, what does that really mean? You know, I'm a marketer by trade. That's why I spend a lot of time researching and understanding people. And it's really the psychology of people that I really get fascinated with, like why they do what they do. Right. Uh, And so when I think about this topic, that idea of like our attitudes, and it's something I went on this journey around, you know, we have this longstanding attitude that roots in religious backing. Right. And it wasn't just the church. There's a lot of evidence that points to like Brigham Young. And it's not where I want to center this on because that's not really the focus. But even preceding Brigham Young, you know, there were Portuguese, there were Spaniards who had this idea of this curse of Cain. That's an ad, that's that like that basing how we treat other people on a, what we what had been formalized then and it was carried on throughout Europe and then brought to America as something that we can stand on that creates an attitude, creates a perspective. You know, and typically what I've done with this, I've I've, tr- I've tried this now multiple times, and I'll get a, an audience. And I say, what if you hear this? If this the attitude? If this is the attitude? What action does it create? And it's fascinating to me because I hear comments like, if this idea of a curse of Cain or, you know, Bruce R. McConkie said, uh, you know, they were less valiant in the pre-existence, speaking of black people, if you have those attitudes, what does that create? And people would say, it makes you think of those individuals as inferior, less than, you know, they're not important to your heavenly father, which is not true. Right. And along with that, it makes me think, and I always tell people, I was like, when you, when you think about this, it really does shift then what the real focus of, of, of the article of faith number two is, right? Which article of faith number two talks about how we can't be judged for others' transgressions, right? So it, it's fascinating to think about it. Like, hey, here we are saying, making this statement. And so I always start there because like, you have to really adjust your attitudes, those same attitudes that were more religious or spiritual in nature were then used in secular ways, right? To, to do things that we know were harmful. And it's one of the things that, you know, I think is so important around this. We have to recognize that. And it's almost like the repentance, but actually not even just, it's, it's, it's the repentance process. You have to recognize when wrong has been done. And it doesn't mean I'm holding anybody to blame and saying, we have to recognize it. None of us were there when this happened, especially in America, but I believe fully that we all own where we go forward from here. And it starts by understanding these attitudes that have become pervasive in our, in, in, in a lot of the ways that we live sometimes. And how do we, how do we then, and then when you think about rooting out racism, how do we pull those out? How do we see a new, right? And then what do we do then going forward? And when we see things that aren't right, are we willing to be vocal about it? Are we willing to stand up in settings where it may be really uncomfortable to say, hey, what you're saying here is not right, or what you're doing here in a business setting is not right? Or, you know, my brother shared, which is painful for me to hear, in his, in his ward, where somebody actually got up in church and talked about how inferior black people were and said that was a truth from God. You know? Unreal. And, and he, this is a member of our faith getting up and actually, and so that's an attitude. And so there's so much work that has to be done there. And I think a lot of us as members of the church don't even know our past. It's not a blame. For me, it's not a blame thing. I'm not blaming anybody. You know, you can, if you study history and you study, if you like to do that, 
you'll see, you know, especially here in, in the United States during, there's so much you can find, but then it's like progress. Progress is, is moving forward. And the one thing I often tell people is I use this analogy of a car and I ask people, where do you sit in the car? Are you a driver or a passenger? Passengers are passive. They don't have to pay attention. They don't have to actually be involved at all, right? They don't have to care where you're going. A driver, hopefully, and I'll cross our fingers. We see all types of drivers out there, right? But drivers have to be attentive. They have to understand the direction they're going in. And on this topic, it's like, are you a driver or a passenger? And what does that mean to be a driver? Well, a driver is interested in other people. They care about other people because that's the second great commandment to love thy neighbor and to love thy neighbor. What does that look like for me on this topic? Well, how often do we go and spend time with people who aren't like us? We're conditioned to spend a lot of time with people who maybe believe the same things or act like we do or have the same interests. But do we have exposure to people who aren't like us? Do we spend time with them? Just, just being around whatever that may be, the culture, ethnicity, groups, gender, doesn't matter. The second part of that is in having a dialogue. Do we have dialogue not to debate and debunk? I call it D&D and L&L. Do we, have, do, we, do we have conversations or dialogue to debate and debunk? Or what we really should be doing, should we, have, we should be having dialogue to actually listen and learn. It's listening and learning from each other. And that listening and learning is more about interest level, curiosity, right? Hopefully creating in us a deeper understanding, which is the third item that I like to say, is a third item is creates a better understanding. Now that understanding may not change any of our core beliefs, but I believe that understanding helps us to understand individuals or cultures or people in a deeper, more intimate way, which at the end of it is this idea that all of this, so exposure, dialogue and understanding leads to us, you know, being able to embrace each other. And I ultimately believe that's what heavenly father wants. I believe that's what our savior taught us when he was here on this earth. He just, he went around embracing people. For sure. So I mentioned that, you know, on one side of the coin, you have people that struggle with this call to, to abandon attitudes and to root out racism. On the other hand, I think you have some that feel like the church is not doing enough. How would you say that the church is doing in this effort? I, for me personally, and and everybody, obviously everybody's different there's so much that we can, there's so much we have done and there's so much that we can do more. You know, I think what I've seen recently and over the last several years, I mean, I remember president Hinckley talking about this, that those, he, 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 he made a statement around, I, I had the quote in my hand here, but he made a statement around how he saw, um, you know, racism raising his, its head again. And those who actually, who agree with that, that stance can't consider themselves disciples of Jesus Christ. So this isn't new, right? You know, I think the work that uh, the Church of Jesus Christ has done in terms of highlighting that none of the justifications that were given before are valid. It's such an important part of how we move forward. The challenge is there's still people who actually believe that those are just that those are justifications. Mm-hmm. Even today, you know, I, I've shared some of these things, and people are like, "Well, what you're sharing is false." I'm like, "No, this has actually come from the church." You can find it. And it's a lot. And I think so where we have an opportunity in the church is deeper education on this topic, more in helping individuals understand, you know, here's the facts that we have, you know, here's what we know what happened. We don't know why. I think the big question that we don't know what is, is the why, why did this happen? And we won't know that because none of us can go back. If we had time machines, we could, but we can't go back and see, okay, tell us Brigham Young why <laughs> we don't know. 
But right. I think the thing that I do believe, and I think it was more for the people that we needed to have a revelation with Spencer W. Kimball to actually move forward. I think it was more for the people at that time because there were people that actually, when they heard the news, actually still left the church. And so I think there's a, there's so much more education that we need to do to help us as members and brothers and sisters in the gospel to understand, Hey, this is where we should be thinking about this. This is how we have to, we, this is how you answer these questions. And there's somewhat, there's the, the big question that I always go that we don't know is like, why? And I can't tell anybody that. Right. And, and that's how I tend to think about it. I think, I think you're spot on. I was at a state conference on Sunday and one of the members of our stake presidency spoke about this call to root out racism. I was impressed that he did this and, and I, you know, kind of sat there. There was a, a girl on the stand who is mixed and was, had just gotten home from a mission, gave an incredible talk herself. And she was probably the only person of color in the state conference. And so I was sitting there and I was thinking, how is she feeling about this? You know, she's sitting on the stand, this talk is being given and, as soon as the conference was over, I noticed that she went over to this member of the stake presidency and thanked him for his talk. And I think for me, sometimes I'm so afraid of saying something wrong that I let it keep me from trying. And so I wondered for you, Ronell, why are these types of efforts impactful, even when we may not get it exactly right? I- it starts with, it's the attempt, right? I think we all, what I've learned, it's where somebody's heart is. I can, I can generally get a sense. I think we're all pretty good, generally speaking, at like understanding where somebody's coming from. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is, that is where we start. I think the, the intent of the heart of somebody is why they're doing it. And the thing is like, we all get, I, I'm not perfect at it. And my wife often says this, she's, she's like, I get it wrong often. And I think we all do, but I think it's through trying that we learn and that we improve and we get better at it. You know, I think that's what's important about it. I think it's hard. It, it is, it is a scary scenario. I think this is, this is one of those conversations that's very uncomfortable mm-hmm. and it's not easy to have. It's probably not easy to hear <laughs> and it's hard to have the conversation. But I think the way that we move forward is having the conversation and talking about it and then figuring out ways of how we can be a part of the solution. And I think for a lot of people, for a lot of black people, especially in the church, it's almost like they, we get turned to as the resource to figure out how to solve it. Right. And then a lot of times this is my sarcasm that comes in here. Morgan is like, well, I didn't start it and neither did any of my ancestors. So why should I have to figure out how to to fix it, fix it. Right. (laughs) It's like, you know, but I, I'm willing to be here. I'm willing to have the conversation and figure out here's the impact it's had on me as a person that it's had on my parents and my, and you know, my ancestors. So my question is, I don't want that to exist for anybody. So how do we do it? Right. How do we do it in a meaningful way? And, And it requires us to come together. It requires us to be vulnerable. And I think that's the hardest part. I don't think anybody, you know, I, I talked to a lot of, a lot of people when I do this and I come up, it's like, well, I feel guilty. And I was like, I, and I, and I have to remind them, I don't think it's, I, it may be guilt that you're feeling, but I think it's more of like, oh, I haven't done anything. 
And maybe that's the real guilt. It's not shame. It's more of like, how can, what can I do? Right. You know, and where, what's my place in this conversation? I had a gentleman the other day and I, did some, I was speaking at BYU at something in the evening last Friday. And he was like, I live in a rural area. What can I do to actually <laughs> to be more? He's like, I live in Idaho in a rural area. There's not many people of color. What can I do? I was like, well, what do you do in your community? How are you advocating, you know, when you hear things that are discussed that, you know, are on this topic that are incorrect, what are you doing to actually stand up to say that we don't believe this, especially when it's in a religious setting or it's with people who you know are members of the church? How would we, and it's hard. I know that's uncomfortable to correct somebody, but we have to be able to figure out ways to do that. And then on the reverse of it, when you're, you know, having, when you're having conversations or you're asking questions, just be vulnerable to know that, Hey, we, I may have, I may ask the question the wrong way, or I may say something the wrong way. And I, I'm okay with that. Cause I'm like, Hey, I'm learning too. Mm-hmm. I have to create spaces for other people to feel like they can ask questions. And I think we can do that as a black community in a lot of ways. But I think in general, if we do that, it, it makes it, it makes it easier to have the right conversations to actually make, have an impact on moving things forward. Right. Right. I, I completely agree. I love that you mentioned that conversation with the man from Idaho, because it reminds me of I in preparation for this, I watched a a talk that you gave virtually, and you shared an experience, You, you talked about how your mom said that she often in her work place of work, she has to listen to conversations where people are talking about these issues and voicing their opinions about them. And honestly, like this is going to sound really ignorant on my part, but I never even considered that like that happens where you're like overhearing these things. And it's like, you're talking about me, like this involves me. And so I wondered if you could share a little bit of about that experience, what your mom shared with you and why it's important for us to be thoughtful about our approach and the things that we're saying in relation to these racial issues. Yeah. My, my, and fortunately for my mom, which she retired recently. So it's, it's off, been awesome actually for her, but she, it's interesting. She and her experience at working at a local hospital in Provo many times, especially when, you know, everything around Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd happened. And that kind of really erupted into what we were have today in these conversations you know, there were so many things that were said and my, my mom just remember just listening. My mom is, you know, she's very kind and compassionate, but she's like any, you know, she's like any parent and, and, and anybody who's kind of has experience with it. She was like, she was so sad and, and frustrated that rather than people asking the conversations, they were making up their own stories. They were validating what we have happened in the world that we hear in terms of attitudes about black people. Well, Mm-hmm. They probably deserved it. They probably did this. They probably have a criminal history and all these things. And it's these broad assumptions, right? It's interesting because what I found is because of what I shared with you before about this kind of this equation of like how we can do this and how we can improve. People don't do that. They start, we just start thinking, oh, wait, I see this on TV or I've heard this. And it's like, well, you're making assumptions. We have no idea, right? And if you want to truly understand a person's experience, why not ask them? Why not have confidence enough to ask somebody if you believe that they're a friend so that you can learn about their experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, my mom, when she experienced this, you know, she, she listens and, and at moments she'll say things, but mostly she doesn't because it's, she can, she can recognize that certain individuals aren't open to it. They've already created these attitudes, these perspectives that they're leaning heavily into 
and keeping because they feel like they're correct. And I think that's the saddest part for me is that when we don't sit back and that's why we start with this whole idea of like attitudes, because they were formulated over the years. A lot of these attitudes were incorrect about black people. They, you know, the stereotypes that you've heard of and, and we all, and there's stereotypes everywhere. Right. But these were ones that were really grounded and kind of really foundational and around slavery and around what we have today in terms of racism. And so when you unpack that, you start to have to think, okay, how do I change that? And I think with my mom, it's always been right. Like, well, people would just sit down. She said to me, even today, I was talking to her before I started with chatting with you today, Morgan. And she said to me, I wish that people knew that most black people don't have animosity. We just want to be able to move forward. We want to be able to thrive, but we can't do that on our own because we don't create the circumstances, <laughs> which is, you know, my, it is sad for me to hear my mom <laughs> talking that way. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so that's how, you know, these experiences, I think it's, there's so many of these that happen, but I think it starts with us being able to really understand where we're at and then being willing. And I think actually president Nelson has said this, how many times we do this, you know, one of the, I think I remember which issue of the, of the Lahona that came out, but it talks about this around race. Like what do we need to do? Go listen to somebody's experience. And I think you, you will all hear and learn different things that will hopefully open our eyes and our hearts. For sure. Well, and I, I have definitely not been perfect in this, but I will say the the conversations that I've been able to have over the last couple of years have changed my perspective. And I've been grateful for friends that have been willing to, to have those conversations because like you said, like, why should we have to, to fix it? But fortunately I've had friends that have been willing to have those conversations, which I've been super, super grateful for. Renell, how do you respond in instances where someone many times, I think, despite their best efforts or intentions, says something that is offensive? <laughs> I, have to think of, I have to think of multiple experiences. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, man, my initial thought process typically really trying to understand where they're coming from. I remember an experience I had in Seattle. I was in a, I was in a bishopric. It was my second time being in one. And I was, you know, I had some gentleman who I didn't know was the parents of one of the families in our ward who was visiting came up to me and he said, it's so nice having people like you on the stand. And I was like, people like, like who? And I just was like, okay, whatever. And I was like, I said, fine. Hey, thank you. So glad to be here. And I told the other bishop member, he's like, and we were talking about at some point after this, he's like, those things never happen. And so Fast forward a couple of months, the same gentleman comes back, the other counselor is standing next to me and the gentleman says the same thing. <laughs> like, it's so nice to have people, which I appreciate, right? It's not, a, it's not a, it's not a, but it's like, I know what he's trying to say. We're like, Hey, it's good. And I can see this other counselor. It's like one of those comics where his jaw just drops. And it's kind of like just falling wider and wider. And he's like, those experiences really do happen to you a lot. And I was like, well, yeah, they do. But I, I can't approach all of them in a way of like, you know, people are meaning to be mean. They're, they're, they really are in a lot of ways excited that we do see change in the church. But it's also sad that that has to be a statement that's made. <laughs> right. right? It's like kind of like, wow, like, it, yeah, it, it is, you know, and I, it, and for me, but I feel it's an honor, but typically I, it, 
it can be hard. There's been several experiences I've had. You know, I remember being at BYU once going to a, a sporting event. I went up to the concessions to get some food. And again, I said earlier, I got, you know, I, I was an athlete. I played college sports and, you know, I, and so this gentleman says to me, Whoa, what sport do you play here? And I said, and I, again, sarcastically, I was like, uh, the sport of academics, because that's what I was doing. And he literally said, no, 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 really. What sport do you play? And in those moments, you just kind of have to look at the individual and say, you know, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing, there's nothing I can say because I was trying to do it in a kind way just to kind of, like, yeah. go. <laughs> but he was really emphatic about, no, you can't be here for school because, you know, whatever that he may be thinking that I can't be there for academics. I'm here for a sport. And, and a lot of times you just have to, you know, for me, I like, I, there's nothing I can do. I'm not going to, I can't change somebody who doesn't see the errors in their ways. Right. And, and so my wife, when we were dating, you know, I remember us being at a BYU football game and she was, we were holding hands and somebody came up to her and said to her, pointing at us holding hands and saying to her, you know, what you're doing is wrong. All right. So this is 2002, fall of 2002. And my wife, who served a mission in Italy, said, well, I served a mission. And then the, the person said back to her, the woman said, well, you of all people should know better. <laughs> and I was having a conversation with my friends. So I didn't really hear all this. And my wife was blown away. This is her, I mean, this is my wife. So this is her first experience experience racism because she, she had no idea how to deal with it, right? She can only do so much. And so these things, you know, and these things happen and a lot of them are offensive. Some of them are not offensive, but just kind of require a little bit more education. And, and I'm fine doing that. But the ones that are super offensive, I just choose to walk away from because me getting, you know, I don't know, vocal or angry about it doesn't do me any good because then I'm again, cast in that light, that stereotype about, you know, black men are angry, you know, and it's like, no, I don't have time to deal with that. Cause I'm not angry, but it's me that would be considered angry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so I, I have to choose to walk away and leave it alone <laughs> and not engage because I, I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. Ronell, I so appreciate all the things that you're sharing and I'm, I'm learning a lot. I think one of the things that I've been really grateful for is the way that you refer back to identity. And this is something that I've thought a lot about. I remember years ago, I was at the Deseret News and, and something came up about, you know, when an identity, whether it be an identity as a journalist or an identity as a a certain race or ethnicity or an identity as you know, our our gender, sexual orientation, whatever that identity is at, at the point in which that identity becomes more important than our identity as a child of God, that's when things get out of balance. And so I love that you've, you've mentioned identity several times and, and that your core identity is as a child of God. And that's all of our core identity. Why would you say that it's important to make sure that the different parts of our identity are given proper priority? You know, that's a good, that's a good question here. I think we're asking real quick because I think there's a quote that I want to share Yeah, that hits on this. Um, I, it's interesting because President Emerson Ballard said this, and I really like this, that he says this. He says, and this was last April general conference. He said, because we are the spirit children of God, everyone has a divine origin, nature, 
and potential. Each of us is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. This is our identity. This is who we really are. Our spiritual identity is enhanced, which I love that word, is enhanced as we understand our many mortal identities, including ethnic, cultural, or national heritage. And for me, what other, you know, I, what other pieces of identity, mortal identities we have, this sense of spiritual and cultural identity, love and belonging can inspire hope and love for Jesus Christ. And I love that quote because it really hits on this idea that our identity should first and foremost start with who we are in terms of being, you know, daughters and sons of God. Like that's really who we are. And it doesn't matter what our religious affiliation is. I remember speaking at something when I worked for Adobe and I said, I brought this up in a business setting that like the reason that I feel so passionate about treating all people with respect is because I know that everyone is a child of God. And that then invokes in me to truly live that commandment to love them. It isn't, you know, I think we, we, it's interesting to see this because of our identity and because the way Satan works with our identity, because we, he know, we know that he doesn't want us to be happy. We know that he doesn't want us to be happy with each other. He likes to have strife and attention. He finds ways to kind of wedge himself in there. And one of the ways that he's wedged himself in there in terms of our identity is that we tend to use our identity and sometimes as a weapon, right? And what I mean by that is like, rather than loving others, we do more judging, which is interesting because the commandment was to love a neighbor, not to judge them. And the Lord says not to judge them and <laughs> to judge others. Right. But we, we, we do the opposite. And and I, and it's an easy way I believe for the adversary to create division between us. Right. And I think that's something that we have to really be mindful of. And so I, I really think that this idea of, our identity being grounded in who we are, that we're children of God. And how does that then become something that's pervasive in how we live our lives and how we see others and how we treat others and how we talk to others and how we invite others and how we care for others. It, it, to me, there's no separation, you know, for me, that's one thing I don't want to leave this world going back to my heavenly father and having him said, yeah, you, your identity, you got it all wrong because how you then acted was not really in true sense of who you're what your identity should have been focused on, which was you being a child of God. And then how does that then create in you a desire to really help and love and support others who are also children of God? So well said. Thank you so much. Ronell, my last question for you is what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, I, and first of all, Morgan, thank you for having me. This, you know, for me, being all in is from, is really focused on fine tuning who I am as a son of God, daily working at it. Being all in for me means living in a way where when others engage with me, and hopefully I don't have to pronounce or say or announce, excuse me, that I'm a child, like that I'm, you know, a member of the church, but that they feel that. They can sense that. They sense something that's different because they can feel my respect and admiration for them, which has been fascinating for me because in my, in my, in not just in my, you know, religious life, but also my career, I've made some great connections with people who are not of our faith, who to this day want to engage with me because like, you always treated me with respect. You were honest. You were a person of high integrity. That's why I believe all in means for me, all in means how are we representing not just ourselves, but our savior, and our walk in our probationary state, as we hear in the scriptures, like, what does that look like? And I'm not perfect at it. I have so much further to go in terms of how I do that, but it's a constant thing that I think about. 
And for me, being all in means working every day to, to be that person. I know I won't reach perfection in this life, which we all should know, but I know I can be better every day. And then really being an example, you know, to those who I live around, my kids, more importantly, and my, my wife being a, a better example to them in terms of how I live the gospel. So that's how I think about, you know, what does it mean to me for to be an all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? It means really for me is to know who I am as a son of God and really to love those around me in the deepest way possible and exemplifying the Savior's love as much as I can. Awesome. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to talk with you. And I, I really, really appreciate your time. No, thank you, Morgan. I appreciate your time. Thank you for the conversation and thank you for all that you're doing. So appreciate it. We are so grateful to Ronell Hugh for joining us on this week's episode. I learned so much from this interview, and I hope you did too. Huge thanks to Derek Campbell of Mix It Six Studios for his help with this episode. And thank you all so much for listening. We'll be with you again next week.